Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Brian Mackinder. You found the Audio Hive podcast. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. You can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. Uh, so today we're going to listen to another podcast recorded here at the studio. I've been working with Saul Abema and Joe Newton of the Hospice Chaplaincy podcast for, man, I don't even know, 20 episodes now. You know, the cool thing about podcasting is that there's just so many people out there with stories to tell. Saul Abema, the host of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show podcast, has one of the most unlikely stories you're going to hear from anybody you've ever met. If you listen to Saul's podcast, you'll hear bits and pieces of his story throughout all the episodes, but the little bits and pieces of it that I was getting made me want to know more, and so I just asked him if I could interview him one day um, and have it be an episode of his podcast, just so people can kind of hear where he came from, how he got to where he is today, and why he is a hospice chaplain. It's uh, an incredible story. You should really take the time to listen to it. Here's the podcast. joining us for the show. Uh, my co-host Joe is not in the studio today, but I have our in-studio engineer, Brian, uh, joining us, stepping in for Joe. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. This is uh, a cool opportunity for me. Um, I've been listening to you guys talk about your profession, your line of work. It's been really eye-opening for me to hear what hospice chaplaincy is all about. And through listening to bits and pieces of your story, I was just kind of curious to get to know you more and learn where you came from and how you got to where you are today because it seemed like quite the journey. I think we'll have a good talk and, you know, it's it's a good timing because I also wanted to share my story because I think in, in a situation of pandemic like this, sometimes we think that, you know, we might not be able to bounce back through this but through history, you see that um, human beings have gone through tremendous tragedy, but we've always built resilience. So I'm open to sharing my story today, uh, hoping that it could inspire somebody to realize that even in the middle of this pandemic, um, uh, just knowing some of the experiences I've gone through just to offer hope that, you know, things happen in life, but at the end of the day, we eventually build enough resilience to bounce back and life will eventually get back to normal uh, the way we know normal to be. This show is brought to you by hospicechaplaincy.com, promoting excellency in professional hospice chaplaincy. You can find the Hospice Chaplaincy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Music. For more information, you can visit hospicechaplaincy.com. We are your hosts, Joe Newton. And I'm Saul Abema. from South Sudan. Yes, I was born in South Sudan, yeah. And you were from a small, small, small village. Town, yes, I called Yei. Yei? Yei in South Sudan, yeah. Um, and what did you tell me the population was? Only... Uh, where we were, our village, uh, about 500 people. 500. It was, uh, yeah, really small. So everybody knew each other? Everybody Everybody knew, knew each, each other. other. Yes. Yeah. It's that kind of village <laughs> yeah. where everybody knows each yeah. other. 
every child belongs to every family, you know. You go, <laughs> the whole village raises everybody, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you go, you eat anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever lunchtime finds you, you just, just go in their house, say <laughs> yeah. hi. Yeah. Uh, what, um, were there other villages around? Like, uh, There were many villages around. Uh, it's not maybe within t uh, 10, 15, 20 minute walk. Okay, or, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there were villages near. Okay. And as boys, you know, we are always walking all over the place. So you go, you visit like other villages and, yeah, and things visit. like that. Yeah. Yes, you go. Uh, yeah. Play with other uh, kids from other villages and then come back. And mm -hmm. life was just fluid like that. Yeah. It was kind of come home when it starts to get dark out or was yeah. it? Yeah. You no, know, come yeah. home. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. When it's, especially when it starts to get dark because, uh, during dinner time, you expect it to be at least home. Your lunch, you can eat anywhere. Okay, okay. Even dinner, you can get away because after dinner, that's when we would sit uh, by the compound, you know. The parents would light some fire. Mm -hmm. you know? So you sit by the compound and then the grandparents begin to tell uh, stories. Okay. Yeah, you see, yeah. we didn't have the privilege of going to the movies. Right. But we have this tremendous oral tradition. Okay, okay, storytelling. Yeah, yeah storytelling. And, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they would tell those stories with sound effects, and it sounds like an really? amazing movie. Yes. Really? Yeah. Were there, like, multiple people that did the sound effects and everything? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was, there was an art, and most of them were really about passing down wisdom. Okay. You know, yes. That was going to be my next question. Yeah, like, what kind oh. of stories? Was it, like, stuff that they had actually experienced? Was it, like... Fables, old yeah. stories, legends, that yeah, sort of fables, thing. Yeah, fables, legends, mm -hmm. uh, all those things that can transmit wisdom to mm -hmm. the younger generation. Yeah. Yeah, so those are the kind of stories. And it was fun. You see, there's a family. They tell stories. You sing. You dance. Uh, next thing you know, because... We come from hot temperatures. Sometimes mm -hmm. we we spend the night sleeping outside on mm -hmm. the mats. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's how even that's how safe. Yeah, we felt that. Yeah, so you talk and kids begin to fall asleep. Next thing you know, everyone is mm -hmm. asleep. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So you didn't have. You said it was like the movies. That was your version of storytelling. So no technology at all. No Any, technology. No telephones, nothing. No telephone, no cars. Yeah. You know. Um, so it was quiet too then, it right? It was a quiet village. Yeah. In fact, yeah, the connectedness to nature is strong. The food you eat, you have to plant it yourself mm -hmm. in your garden. Yeah. Uh, the fruits would go to, you know, climb mango trees, get mangoes <laughs> or yeah. guava or whatever yeah. trees, in, you know. You, you said that you hunted, you told me you like hunted gazelle. Yes. Yeah. Any other things that you hunted or was it? Primarily that, or uh, in our area, it was uh, primarily that. Okay. Yeah. What kind of crops did you plant? Like what? Oh, uh, we planted uh, cassava, millet, sorghum. Cassava. That's the. It's like a root, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We plant. Yeah, lots of roots, <laughs> yams. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. All that kind of uh, foods, and uh, it was really nice, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you still try to get a hold of any of that stuff? Is that yes? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All, there's an African market that I go to sometimes. Really? Where I'm, at? Uh, here in Bolingbroke. Uh, I forgot the name, but yeah. So we go there sometimes to. Like yesterday, I went to an African restaurant uh -huh. for lunch in Bolingbroke. No, in uh, Schaumburg. In Schaumburg. Okay. Yeah. So we. I miss home. You yeah. Know? Yeah. You yeah. never forget. Uh, 
where you come from. So yeah, so sometimes you miss the food, yeah, or the music, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. or yeah, just yeah. anything. The movies, yeah. <laughs> we'll have to. My wife and I, we like we like food. You know, half the reason we travel <laughs> is to try out the different food. You know, yeah. No, maybe no, when all this uh, clears up and we can sit down in restaurants again, maybe we should all go. Yes, yes, man. It's <laughs> That'd fun. be cool. That'd be it's cool. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bet you the sky was really clear there too. I know here with all the lights and everything, you can't really see the stars, but you look up there, you're sleeping out at night, you can probably see everything. Oh yeah, lots of stars. The, yeah. No, the sky was. Uh, Really clear. Yeah. Uh, it's always hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have two seasons, the rainy season okay. and the hot season. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and rainy, rainy, rainy is still hot, right? Just less yeah, hot. Yeah, yeah, rain is still hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, less just so we can plant. You yeah. know, that's the season when we, we begin to plant, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the crops and all that. And yeah. Wake up early in the morning to go to the garden and work on the mm-hmm. ground. Because it gets so hot, so the rain helps to make the ground a little softer. Yeah, and you got to like work early in the morning before it gets too hot, right? And then you take like a break around in the afternoon. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thailand is like that. They have hot, rainy, and cool. And cool is still hot by, you know, my Chicago standards. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, we went there during the cool season. I think we went... uh, we went in February, you know, and it's still 90 degrees every day. <laughs> um, but uh, even there, it was like, you know, the workers and every everybody starts super early, you know, out mm. to the markets and, and the farm lines. And we would get up, walk down just the roads and watch people, you know. And yeah, they're out there before the sun comes up because mm. by noon, man, it's scorching hot, scorching, you know. So yeah. You be home. Yeah. 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 So did you have. Any, I, I know eventually you end up like in Johannesburg and everything, and that was like your first big city. Did you have any like concept of that before? Were there, you know, or the you concept were, of a city, the big city like that? Yeah, no, nothing. You know, our world was it. You, yeah, you did mm-hmm. not think beyond. Uh, you did not even think of the existence of other countries yeah. or other contexts of living, mm-hmm. like the city or the township. All those things, we, we did not, um, our world was just centered around our village. Yeah. yeah, we did not think, imagine beyond that. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> because everyone is born, they don't go anywhere, they grow old, they die there, they get buried there. Yeah. And yeah. I think we were about 10 years old when um, uh, a militia, a local militia group called the Anyanya mm-hmm. in South Sudan, uh, what those um, militia group did is when they were looking for food, mm-hmm. they would come to a village and scare people and shoot guns and people run <laughs> so they can go to their houses and load, yeah. take the cattle, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that happened when I was about 10. They came to our village and they scared people and everybody ran. Mm-hmm. So we lost our parents and uncles and aunties. So my brother and I were together. So, <laughs> oh, you mean like when you just you ran, we and ran. you got separated from everybody? Yeah, we got yeah. separated from everybody. We just ran and kept running that night. And uh, next thing we know, we are far from home. We we're just following another group of people from another village who had just yeah. ran. So, we we're kids, we we're following them uh, for guidance. Next thing you know, after about uh, that thing happened, the attack or the scare happened around 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. 
So it's 6 a.m. the following day, we are somewhere in a different <laughs> Just village. Still going. We are lost. We don't know how to get back home. And uh, <laughs> I remember he met, uh, he met some guys, uh, you know, we are lost. We are from this village. Uh, our grandmother uh, was famous because she was a midwife. So he said, so, you know, this is our grandmother, the midwife. And, uh, and the guy said, oh, I know where you're coming from. And he made a deal. He said, you know what? Uh, if you take us home, I'll give you two of my gods. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so he's, yeah. Yeah, he's just, he's, he puts himself out like that. And the guy, okay. He just went ahead and made the deal, huh? <laughs> he made the deal. Hope that dad, hope that dad wasn't going to be too angry about it. <laughs> so at home. You guys did have two goats, right? Yeah, we, okay. had, we had a lot of goats. Like, uh, yeah, so, it's, <laughs> so he offered two of his own uh, personal goats. Uh, to this man, and uh, yeah, so um, at home they were looking for us, they were worried, and uh, yeah, so the guy took us back home, and uh, they were happy, so yeah, so yeah. he was always <laughs> resourceful in that yeah. sense, yeah. <laughs> can always like, step up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was that like the farthest you had ever been from home at that point, or was that it was, just, yeah, yeah, that was the farthest uh, yeah. we had been from home, yeah, and um that was a big scare. So that was a good, you know, uh, in African culture, the firstborn is automatically considered the leader. Okay. You know? Especially if he's a male, he's next to dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he took, uh, now through this journey, he took the leadership role, you know, yeah. but he's that kind of leader that when he's, he has ideas, he has to first broadcast it yeah. out to, you know, to feel what other people think. And I think it's a good skill. Yeah. <laughs> well, so um, I just remembered too, I, w I was going to ask, um, your dad was was chief, right? Yes. Of your village. So it's, I, I assume that it's hereditary. Would that, would that mean that your brother would be like the next in line or? Yeah. Uh, with that, uh it's a show of leadership, mm -hmm. especially when it comes. Yeah, in the family, he would be considered next in line. But when it's communal leadership, it's that uh, it, a leadership trait yeah. that so the he, elders look for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, either him or I or any other child that they would have. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't necessarily like inherited leadership. It was still, it was picked it by. It was by familiar, elders. yeah. It was yeah. in the family, but yes. It would be picked by a council of eight elders who yeah. studied your personalities mm -hmm. and believe, okay, I think for this time, this person can can take the leadership better than, yeah. Yeah. Do you think your brother? <laughs> do you think your brother had like aspirations for that, or or was that just it, it didn't matter? He was gonna be that leader anyway. I don't think he had uh, aspirations. I don't think uh, like I don't yeah. think he cared about uh, leadership. In a sense, he is the funny guy. You know, he mm -hmm. likes to have fun. He just yeah. like, he doesn't like a lot of structure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So maybe yeah, so, he probably wouldn't want it at all. Then. No, I don't yeah. think he would want that. Is <laughs> <laughs> there those kind of guys that you know can get the job done, can assume leadership, and but they want to be free. They want to do their own thing yeah. without too many eyes, you know, mm -hmm. watching and all that. Yeah. What What was forget what you told me. Well, what was the religion there? What uh, The majority or, of reli uh, religion in my 
village uh, where uh, animis it means the traditional african religion okay yes and then there's a percentage of uh, christians mm-hmm. yes so just between those two the animis who believe in ancestral worship okay yes and then uh, the christians mm-hmm. but the the traditional religion had more uh, more people the traditional yeah yes where did the uh I mean, I have an idea of where the Christian influence came from, but where, like, when it got to your village, like, who brought it there? Was it missionaries? Yeah, missionaries it, from yeah. Britain. In fact, yeah. uh, Sudan was uh, a British colony. Okay. And then they left in 1956. Mm-hmm. But by then, uh, they had had a lot of influence in, in South Sudan. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I, I was looking at the map, and so there's Sudan and South Sudan. Yeah. Were they at one point, like, it one was country? One, yeah. It was yeah. one it was the biggest country, mm-hmm. but just a few years ago, uh, then uh, I don't remember exactly when, but that's when uh, South Sudan gained uh, her independence. Okay. Yeah, so now it's two countries. Was that in your lifetime or was it before you were born that they were like a separate country? No, they or? just separated recently, maybe five, six oh, years okay, ago. Oh, okay, 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 yeah, gotcha. So, so when you tell people South Sudan now, it's just so they can look at the map, but to yes. you, it was just Sudan. It's, it was Sudan. Just Sudan. Yeah. Yes. Okay, okay, yeah. gotcha. So... You were 10 or 12 years old when things kind of changed? Yes. Uh, yeah, that's when uh, things kind uh, of changed big for me. Yeah. Know? Yeah, when I was about 10, there were rumors of war, you know, in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, would have uh, people who are fleeing from other areas who've been mm-hmm. attacked by the government um, slowly come through our village. Okay, so you kind of heard rumors uh-huh. from so them. You, you yeah. hear rumors, but our culture has a way of protecting kids, mm-hmm. you know, from okay. bad news. But, yeah, you'd see refugees come through the village. Then you hear the elders talking, and and you hear they're worried, but they're whispering if you're around, so you don't hear much, so you yeah. don't know much. Okay. But you suspect, um, why are all these people living? Mm-hmm. Their homes. Why are all these people on the run? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was going on for about uh, from when I was ten. I began to notice that. Mm-hmm. But the thing with a uh, tragedy like that, when it happens, you never imagine that it will happen to you. Yeah, you see, just like when the coronavirus right. started, it's, you think exactly, it will stay in China. That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. <laughs> so it was like that. You're thinking. Um, this will never affect me. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I'm seeing people displaced, but uh, but then <laughs> it hit home. Yeah. It hit home in 1989. And um, that was challenging, you know, as, as a child. Like I'd said earlier, um, our job, me and my brother, our job was to graze the cattle, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and then... Um, come back, make sure that they're safe, make sure we didn't lose them to right. wild, wild animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And then that crazy day when we got back home and that crazy evening where our village was attacked. Yeah. Did you know who it was, like when the attack was happening? Yeah, every everybody knew um, mm-hmm. that the Sudanese... Uh, government mm-hmm. uh, was conducting uh, the janja weed, what is called ethnic cleansing. Oh, okay. So it was in full effect and uh, everybody knew. So even from those people 
refugees who had crossed by our village, they were letting everybody know what the government was doing. Gotcha. Yeah. So what, I'm just not familiar. So what was, you said it's like an ethnic cleansing. What was like the ethnicity that they were targeting? So when, <laughs> when the British left in 1956, mm -hmm. Sudan was then colonized uh, by the Arabs. Okay. The Islamic fundamentalist okay. Arabs. Mm -hmm. So uh, they made uh, Sudan uh, an Islamic nation. Okay. And they began to rule the country under the Sharia law mm -hmm. where they were forcing everybody to become Muslim. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I stay away from those guys, but that yeah. is the truth. Okay. That's yeah. The just, I don't know the history. Yes. yes. So, so I'm they just want curious. everybody yeah. to become Muslim. So okay. when they would mm -hmm. find you, when they would find Christian in the South, because we had tremendous British influence, mm -hmm. it was Christian compared to Muslim. They would ban them. They would find you uh, worshiping God in a church. They would kill everybody. They would yeah. slaughter everybody and ban everybody. So their goal was to cleanse everyone who does not believe mm -hmm. yeah even animist animist that's yeah. right yeah so even even that as long as you don't believe in in the quran mm -hmm. and in the you know uh in their beliefs yeah you don't deserve to be to live there's not even yeah. no chance so you are even, a ginger weed you're a yeah. bad weed the goal is to uproot you oh okay yes <laughs> that was a concept gotcha yeah so that's actual that's the background mm. It's brutal. It's yeah, religious, and uh, and so the people in the south refused to convert mm -hmm. and held on to their strong Christian faiths. And at a certain point, they just said, "You're going to die." Yeah, so they would attack villages and just slaughter many people, you know, and kill uh, as many people as possible. Yeah. Ooh. That's how brutal. <laughs> yeah, man. That's how brutal uh, it was. Did you, did you even have like a concept that somebody could, that somebody would do something like that just because of beliefs? Did you like have any kind of understanding of it, or was that? Um, that was unimaginable. Um, the way we were raised, you know, my parents were de devout Christians, mm -hmm. you know, were raised in the church, the golden rule, you know, do unto others the way you want to be done to you, treat yeah. others the way you want them to treat you was yeah. the golden rule at home. Mm -hmm. I had never imagined any form of inhumanity to humanity right. in that grand scale. Um, so everything, uh, yeah. That was what the government was doing. It was something we would never imagined that yeah. we never thought was even possible. And then you were just kind of exposed to it all at once. Yeah. Yeah. So that crazy evening, the, the government militia, you know, arrived in our village. And uh, next thing you know, uh, as we were just getting ready for dinner. And um, you hear people screaming outside and there were gunshots, AK-47s shooting and people screaming and it was so loud and chaotic. And my father says, um, uh, guys, just stay here. Let me step outside and see how we can escape this, what is happening. It looks like the government militia is here. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, he could not even leave the house. The moment he opened the door to step out, they pushed him back in. And this militia, um, about four or five men um, dressed in dark uh, militia uniform, you know, with a face um, mask. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they pushed my parents down. My brother and I, we were tied together, you know, with kids, and they put us in the corner, and they focused our attention on, on our parents, and they began to beat them. Uh, my brother yelled uh, for them to stop, and they beat him too. And um, so they beat them. Next thing you know, they had the machetes, and they began to chop them into pieces. And as if that was not enough, they brought gasoline, poured on their bodies, and lit them on fire. And uh, as a 12-year-old boy watching that and how my parents died, um, a part of me died because we were praying, you know, silently. We were praying for a miracle, you know, for God to save us uh, from this... Uh, crazy uh, demonic people uh, uh, yeah, yeah. from whatever that was happening. Yeah. So as the fire was burning, you know, <laughs> when the roof is made of grass, we just knew that that was the day we were all going to die, that mm-hmm. the fire would catch the roof. We are tired. There's nothing we can do. Yeah. And then um, all of a sudden after they lit them on fire, they left the, the, uh, the hut. And they ran away, they ran out. And after some time, the Sudanese People's Liberation um, Army came to our village to rescue us. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, it was a little too, the damage was done, but they came to our heart because mm-hmm. we were screaming for help. Somebody mm-hmm. heard us, they came and they untied us. And they went to different hearts to see if there were any survivors. Apparently, uh, lots of children were left. <laughs> That's, that was going to be my question. Yeah, yeah, did they leave like on purpose or did something scare them off or was it, yeah. It was I just... think uh, they focused the attention more on the elderly, you know, mm-hmm. thinking, you know, children, um, their philosophies of life are not strengthened yet. They can easily be shaped. And, and they're um, kind of maybe trying to use fear to, yeah, you know, get you to convert. Yes. Yeah. So the Sudanese People's Liberation Army came, and um, so a lot of us children survived. And then they decided that they would take us to the refugee camp because mm-hmm. they did not have um, the resources to take care of <laughs> so yeah. many kids. Where yeah. is the army, it seems like, I mean, they weren't there quick enough, but they were there pretty soon. So were there like military bases nearby or did they know that the army was coming? Like how did the, how did they respond? Or I guess what, what size, when you say army, like how many yeah. people, what size of a, a force is that? So the Sudanese People's Liberation Army was a, a, a militia group that was formed uh, to fight against the government's mm-hmm. um, uh, intentions to kill people in the South. Okay. Yes. So it's a group of militia, guerrilla soldiers formed by local residents. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it was, there was a, yeah, uh, those that came to my village that evening was about maybe 20 to 30 soldiers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so they were a militia group. Gotcha. And they were just <laughs> people from all different villages. Because you said the villages were 15, 20 minutes walk away. So. Yes. 
Um, and I imagine what, what was, was it flat? Was it Hills? Could they hear if people were just at another village, 20 minute walk away, could they hear the gunfire and everything yeah, from yeah. that far away? Yeah, they could hear the yeah. gunshots. So maybe they had, uh, the gunshots and they were keeping track. They, you know, their mission was to defend the people mm -hmm. uh, in South Sudan. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they were also tracking uh, the yeah. government's, uh, you know, activities where they were, what they mm -hmm. were doing, and they were also preparing to be ready to counter. Yeah. Yes. So that is when they came. And um, so, uh, yeah, they decided, okay, let's take all these kids and all these people survive, let's take them to the refugee camp in northern Uganda. And, um, yeah, so they took us there. It was a long walk for days. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. How did you, you walk and yeah. about how many miles was it? Do you remember? Or oh, kilometers or? Um So it's uh, 345 kilometers. How many miles? Yeah, 214. 214, that's a long walk. Yes. And it was over a few days? Yes, 214 miles. Yeah. And there's no, I mean, did they have provisions for you or it was just Uh What you? happened is that, um, yeah, when we got out, we stopped in any garden mm -hmm. and uprooted, had some cassava, or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, yeah, so we were able to stop and eat. So, yeah, it's a long, because it was a long distance, it took a long time. I don't remember whether, how many days it took, but it was a long walk. I imagine that you're kind of in shock anyway. It yeah. could have been three days or 10 days, and it probably didn't really make a difference to you at that no. point. You know? You're numb, you're grieving, you're going through lots of emotions. And um, it was, um, that, yeah, it was hard. Along the way, some people died um, as we made that long walk. Some people died along the way. From um, some, Yeah, or? those who were wounded mm -hmm. um, and had a little strength. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, and really, um, it was tough. And sometimes we had to bury, find, you know, if they died. In, normally around the gardens, there would be like a digging hole mm -hmm. uh, that you'd find and dig some grave and just bury some, but some just had to leave them um, along the road. Uh, <laughs> talk about survival of the fittest. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you, you're walking like a, a zombie. You have no emotion yeah, at this time. One foot in front of the shock. other. Yeah. Yes, we're in total shock about everything that just happened and trying to, um, your entire body system becomes numb. Uh, when your body, when you you experience to something, your body has never imagined. It does not even accept yeah. it. Yeah, uh, your brother was a couple of years older than yeah. He was than two you. years older. Than but did he handle it any differently than you, or was he? I remember that because he was a little older, he was trying to challenge. He was trying to talk a lot, so he was also wounded. You know, he was beaten, so he was mm -hmm. wounded by the side too. So it was much harder for him because of the wounds mm -hmm. and uh, the bruises and all that. Yeah, he had swellings on, on his forehead and mm. yeah, so it was... Um, so when they were there, I mean, he was talking to them, you mean? Like he was yeah. Yeah, yelling at them? Yeah, he was yelling at them and trying to protect our parents. And for me, I was just trying to pray. Uh, 
Yeah, but nothing worked. So it was hard for him too. And um, so you're in the the refugee camp now. What was what was that structure like? What? So after the long walk, uh, we find out we, we arrive at the refugee camp, and we are given tents uh, by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And um, yeah, in our tent, uh, we had about five to six boys. I don't remember, but yeah. Nice big, you know, so not so big, but where we could fit, we, we had mats there. Mm-hmm. So then uh, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, they would bring food and clothing, you know, once a month. You know, they would, okay. they would have a truck there with full of full rice and beans, and then they would mm-hmm. divide it, rationalize it for people you mm-hmm. know, in small rations and all that. And, um, yeah, that's how life was. And uh, for many of the, the boys, uh, that was a, a brutal time of depression, mm-hmm. you know, because now you're faced with the reality uh, to adapt to life without your parents. We had to become our own parents. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, beyond that, you're in a new country. Mm-hmm. So you have to... Uh, redefine you know yourself as a person in a new country learning a new language uh, okay. a new community mm-hmm. um, everything about home uh, the form of stability you had at home is no longer there uh, so that was difficult uh, to adjust to life in the refugee camp uh, in fact many of the kids committed suicide that's how brutal it was because you sit down and you wonder what is my life? Will mm-hmm. I ever bounce out of this? Will things ever get better for me? And uh, for me, when I looked, it was bleak. Mm-hmm. You know, so many times I tried to commit suicide. And um, uh, my mother's faith uh, helped me because <laughs> every time I was in that dark space, you know, I would stay in, the, in in that tent for days without getting out, without really? eating. Yeah, I'd lost a lot of weight. I was having hallucinations. I was uh, I was closer to dying. And many times when I'm like, let me end this. There's no hope for me. There's no future here. Let me just end this. And it's like I would hear my mother's voice uh, saying, God will make a way for you. God will make a way for you. And then I would nod. Now, God, I hated. My mother, I loved. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> yeah, so I had to trust uh, my mother's voice. So in the refugee camp, uh, we were taken through counseling. You know, they had therapists um, there to help us uh, process uh, the trauma uh, mm-hmm. that we had had and to try to make to find meaning, you know, in this tragedy and to find a sense of hope. So, yeah, so we had a therapist there. We had um, some preachers there too, you Mm -hmm. know, to pray. Uh, But the part of religion, I hated. You know, I could never uh, reconcile the fact that God did not come through for my parents when in the in the moment of need so why yeah. why worship mm-hmm. a god who could not show up in your biggest moment of need why yeah and so that did not make sense to me um and then uh beyond therapy 
we had some British missionaries that also came and brought some soccer balls. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and for me, that became uh, an amazing uh, level of therapy for me. Yeah. Soccer became uh, therapeutic. It's an outlet. Yeah. It's it became yeah. Up to now, is the number one uh, outlet for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. They gave us soccer balls and then would play, you'd sweat. Everyone had yep. their own ball. Mm-hmm. During the day, would form teams and compete. And yeah. So, yeah, so that was uh, uh, amazing. It took me out of the dark, the, the dark hole that I was feeling. So instead of sleeping, I would want to go outside and kick the ball. Right, yeah. Yes. Gives you something you focus when, you, especially when you're playing a game against somebody else. It's yeah, you know, you focus on it, and it kind of gives your brain a, a new pattern. It's a, it gives your mind a new new path to go down. So you're not just kind of going down that you know the dark hole that kind of you were digging for yourself there. Yeah. So yeah, I would spend hours juggling, learning how to juggle the ball, how to hit the ball, you know, how to do <laughs> tricks. Yeah, and um. Another thing I admired was the resilience, you know, uh, when I when I hit the ball hard, it bounced harder, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so uh, in that sense, <laughs> I admired that resilience. And, and you see, in tragedy, you have to build resilience uh, to survive mm-hmm. because life is full of traumatic events. Even what we are going through right now with coronavirus, we have to build resilience to survive. So, yeah, so through soccer and through the therapy I had, it was able to help me establish a sense of resilience and a new normal mm-hmm. and to accept that, you know, this is where life has me. My parents are gone. And to accept that perhaps, perhaps there's still life for me. Mm-hmm. So I was able to bounce out of my depression. And uh, so um, things were beginning for my brother and I we're doing little jobs in the local villages uh, to try to survive. Mm-hmm. And so we were trying to establish ourselves. Yeah. Did you yeah. get paid money or was it for trade? Like you were doing work just in exchange for food or what? Yeah, sometimes you did work just for food. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you did work just for money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was survive at all costs. Yeah. Whatever what that kind will of, help what, you survive. Yeah, what kind of jobs? Uh, gardening, mm-hmm. you know, you're going and planting some, you know, some crops for somebody mm-hmm. uh, at night. The local places had, you know, places where they sold liquor. Okay. And they would need some kind of security, mm-hmm. you know, because sometimes people get so drunk and they don't want to <laughs> pay the ladies, yeah. well, you know, distilling this nice brew they like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you were the muscle? What? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we had to do everything <laughs> uh, to survive. <laughs> yeah, so gardening, cleaning somebody's mm-hmm. yard, ev- anything that could give us a plate of food to survive until the next day. Yeah. So your life philosophy becomes simple one day at a time. Mm-hmm. You cannot think beyond that. Just today, Lord, help me survive today. And then, yeah. Then tomorrow is tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> With uh, soccer at that point, had you been able to like, I guess in the refugee camp, was it the same thing? Were you still kind of away from technology? Did you have radio, access to television, anything like that there? Or, it, or uh, soccer was just, you just knew it as what they taught you? 
Yeah, uh, there was radio, but mm -hmm. none of us had resources to purchase a radio. Mm -hmm. So soccer. So we formed a, a soccer team, and my brother was actually an amazing goalkeeper. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was a striker. So we formed a soccer team uh, for the different sections of the refugee camp. So we had activities going in the evenings mm -hmm. just to to yeah to to feel normal again. Yeah. And, yeah. So those competitions. Uh, I loved, you yeah, know? yeah, because from a young age I'm always competitive. So anything to compete, I yeah. just gets my blood flowing. The reason I was asking about like the radio or if you had heard it on, on a you know an official, organized, national level was the rules. If you're learning it, you know, just from other people, did you guys play any differently, or did you like later on in life realize, oh, we were that's not how we played? You know, was there anything like that or? Uh, we made our rules. Yeah, I just made it up. <laughs> yeah, we made our rules. <laughs> yeah, so we did not know. I mean, the missionaries who brought the balls really gave us the basics, mm -hmm. you know, of the rules of the game. But in most cases, uh, we made our rules and just had fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, That's the cool, goal right? was fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Your brother probably wouldn't have followed the rules anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was fine, and life was going fine. And so we were there when I, uh, for two, almost two, three years when I was 15. Uh, at that age, you know, um, yeah, you're beginning to bounce back. I was 15, he's 17. In our village, you got married around 18. Okay. So we are getting older. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, uh, <laughs> boys began to disappear uh, from the refugee camp. And you'll be playing soccer with somebody today and then tomorrow you don't see them, you know. And that sent... Uh, some kind of terror within the refugee camp, you know, what's happening. Yeah, and that had just started then, right? That wasn't like yeah. the case It wasn't the case. before. No, it wasn't no. the case. So what happened is that the war had gone so strong that the Sudanese People's Liberation Army needed more soldiers, needed more militia. Mm -hmm. And they figured most of the older people, especially when a village is attacked, most of the older people are killed. Mm -hmm. But they also believed that the boys would have uh, a sense of desire to revenge. Okay, that's yeah. That was my thought. Was you know, or well, when you said that, I was trying to keep the army straight. So the Sudanese Liberation Army, that was the army that came to your aid. Yeah, those okay. they served mm -hmm. us, but now yeah. they need militia yeah. to continue to serve. Mm -hmm. Yes, and they need militia to continue to fight against the government and to serve people in the south. So. Um, that's when they begin to uh, to kidnap the boys, you know, and force them uh, into uh, the army camp and train them. But nobody knew that it was happening. So, uh, what did you, did you guys have any idea? Like when people before you know you realized what was going on, did, did anybody have any idea that that's where people were disappearing to, or mm -hmm. what did what did people think? What was going around? People were just scared. Yeah. Yeah. People are just terrified. Like you're fighting an enemy you don't know, an invisible enemy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So people were really scared. And so my brother and I went to fetch water. And um, uh, 
And then from there, uh, as we were walking through the forest to go fetch water, uh, these guys that, you know, came and pointed guns at us and said, you're coming with us. And when we arrived at the makeshift uh, military camp they had, that's when we saw all the other boys we used to play with. They were people that you knew? Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. There were people that we knew. Yeah, how far was that? That camp was it? Uh, the camp was in the middle of the forest, man. It's uh, it's about. Uh, so it was the, the forest that you actually went into for water. We went into yeah. for water, and then yeah. So, but maybe maybe ten, fifteen miles yeah. deeper. So it wasn't even that far. Yeah, it wasn't that far. Yeah. So we arrived there. They had a makeshift uh, place where they had all these young soldiers. Uh, mm. And their philosophy was, we are giving you a chance to revenge the death of your parents. Yeah. Your parents would be proud of you to fight and mm-hmm. kill those people that killed them. Yeah. You know, so uh, they're trying to use every kind of um, philosophy, uh, every kind of psychology mm-hmm. to get us pumped up yeah. you know, and to fight. Yeah. Um, so that was their motive. But that probably didn't gel with you because like you said, the golden rule, was that still going through your mind at that time when they were telling you that sort of thing? Like, you know, you want revenge, don't you? Did you, was there any part of you that said, yeah, you're right? Or was it just right from the start? Uh, Personally, Personally, I was conflicted. Yeah. Um, these are the people, this is the group that saved my life, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so they were the good guys. Yeah. Now they're coming as the bad guys. Mm. So I, from a young age, I've, I've always been uh, reflective. So my <laughs> understanding of life was totally being messed up. Mm-hmm. When the good guys turn into bad guys and give you AK-47 and pump you up on drugs and train you to be a killing machine, um, uh, it was tough to reconcile. Um, yeah, for some kids, it was a great opportunity. They were ready mm-hmm. from the get-go. They were okay. ready to yeah. revenge. Where they, um, they, I was thinking, like, did they ever just try walking into the camps and just recruiting people? Did they ever, or they just decided kidnapping was uh, the way to go? We under the care of the United Nations. Oh, okay. So they were keeping yes. those like recruiters out. Yeah, mm-hmm. they would be in trouble. Yeah, yeah because okay, okay. United Nations are a strong army. And yeah, and they yeah. don't want, they're trying to probably de-escalate. And, 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 <laughs> yeah, okay. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So... The training was tough. Um, yeah. You wake up in the morning and they take you through tremendous physical drills. And um, after that, they train you how to dismantle. You know, you have this AK-47, how to dismantle it, put, mm-hmm. to put it back together, how to shoot. Uh, and the goal is for you to be tough. They do everything to make you tough, to make you not think. And they don't want you to think. Right. <laughs> you just need to just be, follow orders and yeah. Just follow orders. Just be like a machine, you know. Um, yeah, and that was tough. Uh, that was tough for my brother and I, and we faked it. You know, you have to because if they sense that you are not committed to the cause, you get killed. So you had to be committed to the cause. So we had to fake it. 
enough um, uh, to survive. Your brother, too, was not happy. Yeah. So our plan was to escape. And we had seen, you know, some people tried to escape, got killed. So we knew the price, that if they find you escaping, you get killed. And um, I went through severe depression, you know, in that time. And um, I tried to commit suicide. I just couldn't do it, you know. I would still hear my mother's voice saying, God will make a way for you. God will make a way for you. And at that point, life had no meaning for me. You know, after I lost my parents, I lost meaning. But now at the refugee camp, I was beginning to regain that appetite for life. Mm -hmm. Now we are kidnapped again. Now we are in the military. Um, At 15, life had lost its meaning for me. I didn't... um, I just wanted to die Um, many times. I just didn't want to live anymore. And my brother would say, you know, we'll get get through this. We'll get through this together. We'll overcome this. We'll build a life. Yeah. So it was tough, but it was always, uh, you remain positive. You know, Mm -hmm. let's just soldier through this. Let's do the drills well. Let's perform well. You know, mm-hmm. let's let our performance not um, relax because they might shoot us. Right. So let's do enough to survive. I know we're going to escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you never had to go out and fight or anything? You never got that far? I mean, there were moments we went to the front lines. Oh. Yeah, there were moments we were in the front lines of fire. And the sick people next to you uh, shot dead, and it was tough uh, because the <laughs> as a guerrilla soldier, you don't have all the military equipment mm-hmm. like the government has. Yeah. So you're relying on if the AK or spears or arrows or you know those. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> really, not methods. everybody didn't even have a gun. It was no. Man. You have a bow and arrow, mm-hmm. you climb on top of a mango tree or, or some big tree and just shoot and they and don't know where it's try coming to get out. from. Yeah. Try to get out. Yeah. It's, it's a crazy form of military. Yeah. Did you, so you had to fight? Sometimes. Um, yeah. Sometimes you had to fight, sometimes not. Uh, sometimes our job was really, especially the younger boys, sometimes our job was to go to the villages and loot and bring food. <laughs> so just scare people Go off scare like you, people, would, like let you them had been run. scared off yeah. at one time. Yeah, no. yeah, let them run and collect the so food. So that was and, a real role yeah. reversal to all yeah. of a sudden be on the other side of it. Yeah. And do you think the people that had like scared your village off the one time, was it the same situation for them? Was it the same or? Who, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Because that is a job in itself. You go, you scare people off and you get some food, you bring it to the camp. You know, I I lost all feeling. I didn't feel. I didn't feel anything. Uh, I was just going through the emotions. Yeah, if you don't believe in what it is you're doing, what else can you do? Yeah. So I didn't feel anything. I numbed, uh, I numbed myself. And, um, yeah, that's how life was, man. <laughs> Even sitting here is a miracle, brother. It was... Uh, man, it's... <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so we did that um, for about five years, six years in 1999. Um, my brother and I, you know, we tried to escape. And he was the mastermind, you know, he came up with an idea and he told other boys, you know, my brother and I, we are trying to escape, can you join us? Mm. And uh, then So he uh, wasn't necessarily trying to brag. No, no, but he was trying to recruit more people. Right. Because he believed that uh, with more, maybe we will survive. Mm-hmm. And uh, instead of just him and I, um, yeah, and, and it makes sense. You know, together you can survive more with, with more people. I don't know. But that was his idea, to recruit more people. But the thing is, uh, <laughs> when you are in a place where anybody can kill anybody at any time, mm-hmm. uh, you are not really encouraged. Yeah, you know that somebody might, you know, snitch or you tell the commanders, you know, that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what happened. One of the boys, I don't know who, but told um, the commander, watch out for those two brothers. They're about to escape. Do you think that he told the commander because he was trying to gain favor or did he just believe in the cause and he didn't want you to go? Or like what would what would be his motivation? Uh, believe in the cause. Yeah. Yeah, many people. <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah, you believe in the cause so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So really, even if I did not believe in the cause, many people actually did, mm-hmm. and they were they've gave their lives uh, for the cause. So that evening, you know, we're beginning to escape. It got dark, and we're beginning to run. Next thing we know, the shots at us, and my brother was shot dead. He fell next to me, and I stopped running. And uh, it was tough, began to cry. Um, he was gone, man. He was dead. And I was taken back. I was begging them to kill me because now I did not see a life uh, without him. I did not imagine any survival. So I was mm-hmm. begging them to kill me. And uh, uh, I think the next day or or two days after that, we had a confrontation with the government militia and I went to the front lines. I wanted to be shot dead mm. and I could not get shot and I hated it. That was like I wanted your way to die. To, yeah. yeah. People next to me are being shot dead and I was not. And I was mad. I went back to the camp. I was depressed. I wanted to die so much. Um, and the voice of my mother would always come, God will make a way for you. God will make a way for you. And um, so I bounced off from that uh, <laughs> stress, uh, but still my appetite for living was no longer there. I lost all appetite for life. You ask yourself, what is my life? What is my purpose? You know, what does this life have for me? I really had no answers. When you ask yourself, what does life have for me? And you can't find an answer. You wonder, why should I even wait for another day? Mm -hmm. There's nothing in here for me. And you know, now as I look back, I encourage people. There's actually, (laughs) 
they could actually be life, mm-hmm. you know. So even in that moment of gloom, in that moment of personal darkness, in that hole where you think you can't get out, just hang on, don't end your life because there is actually life. You know, life is bigger. Uh, things work in mysterious ways. You know, just when we think this is it, we can't come out of this, you'll be surprised that you can. the very next day and all the bullets missed all the bullets missed and I was mad yeah yeah because it, I wanted I mean, those bullets to hit me not anyone yeah. yeah would you even did you even have the thought like that it was a miracle or it was just no mad, just mad I was mad you were just mad <laughs> <laughs> I want L- to die looking I'm, back on it I, now though now I look back. It was a yeah. miracle. Yeah. Yeah. Now for me as a Christian man and as a, as a religious leader, uh, God uh, saved my life. The God I hated. <laughs> 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 and so when I travel and I talk to children or to universities and colleges, and the question is, how did you reconcile <laughs> mm-hmm. your love for God, you know? Yeah, so it was a long journey. Yeah. But now as I look back, you know, God protected me and I think God um, had a purpose for me. You know, there was more, you know, for me to do in life. And just sharing this story of being able to inspire thousands of people from different continents, different countries. So, you know, God works in mysterious ways. So people, yeah, right now people get inspired. They realize, oh, the problem I had is not that much. <laughs> yeah, it's, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to diminish like everybody's kind of personal struggle, you know, to yeah. them, yes. you know, if they have problems seems really big. Yes. But there is, yeah, there is a kind of a matter of perspective, you it know. It puts it's, things into context. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. you realize, you know what, some people had it, was mm-hmm. and they're surviving surely yeah. i can survive mine yeah so it gives you a, li- a little bit of um hope um in that sense so yeah so i was back in the military and then in early 2000 the government this time brought the antonov the russian made antonov the is it the helicopters that were throwing okay. bombs down mm. and then uh there everybody was just running Everybody just trying to find cover and safety. So I just ran. Mm. At first was to be safe. Right. <laughs> Next thing I realized I'm far from everybody. I yeah. don't know where everybody is. So I'm like, okay, maybe I've escaped. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's shooting at you, right? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it dawned on me that, hey, I've escaped. So you don't have to go back. I don't have to go back. 
So I began to look. Uh, I was just going anywhere. I had no sense of direction. I was just going anywhere. When I arrived at a place, I would climb a tree or climb a hill to see if I could see any houses mm -hmm. anywhere. So I, that went on huh, for many hours, many hours, man. Um, I, at least I found some springs to drink water. Mm -hmm. Were you still yeah. in like the forest at this point? Yeah, in the jungle now. Okay, in the jungle, in yeah. In the jungle, yeah. I found some places to drink water and some places to find some fruits to eat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to keep me going. And then... Uh, in a sense, you were kind of prepared for that because you spent your whole my life, life before that. Yeah, yeah. it's mm -hmm. my life. So I'm a jungle man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so living in the wild, that was my life for about, yeah, six years or so. So that was normal. And uh, so after a while, I stood on uh, on a little hill and I saw uh, some buildings and all that. I realized, okay, I'm closer. So I mm -hmm. went to that direction. And it was the border of Uganda and Sudan. And, um, uh, yeah, so I spent the night uh, in front of a store, by a storefront. Spent the night there early in the morning. It was busy. There were buses. There was transportation. It was a busy commercial town. Mm -hmm. And then um, I began to ask for help. And one guy, um, you know, I found kindness in his eyes and he, he bought me a bus ticket. Um, they told me it's not safe for you to be here. Just take the bus, go to the capital city, go to Kampala in Uganda and you're going to be fine there. Why Why wasn't it? Why did he think it was not going to be safe for you there? Uh, he says it was a village. Our group came and looted from many times and if they find mm -hmm. that I was one of those people... They might kill me. Yeah. Yeah. Did people like realize or understand that people had like been kidnapped and things like that? Was that kind of knowledge, public knowledge at all? Or It's not just, public knowledge. They because just assumed everybody was a volunteer. They assumed that every guerrilla soldier was a volunteer yeah. fighting for a cause. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And because that is how they... they demonstrated. When mm -hmm. we went to loot to villages, we were rough. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So I don't blame them. We were rough. We did everything to, yeah, to, yeah. Intimidate. To intimidate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I went around the taxi rank and I, I bought me a plate of food. So I would eat, I wait. And then the time comes for the bus to leave and we leave. It was a long, long trip uh, uh, to Kampala, long journey. I'm looking at it here on the map now, and yet yeah, mm. almost as far south as you can go, and you're right on Lake Victoria. Yeah, yeah. So we make it there. Um, everybody knows where they're going. I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> I get out of the bus. I'm in a busy. It's a nice, you know, fast city. I've seen in my life. Okay. <laughs> lots of cars, yeah. lots of people, lots of big buildings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For a man who's lived in the jungle, mm -hmm. um, that was quite an interesting, uh, an eye-opener yeah. to see so much uh, commotion. You know, everybody's doing something and people are busy and all this and commercial mm -hmm. 
people trading, making money, business deals. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I got out and um, walked around admiring this nice place. I couldn't find any help. Uh, Did um, they speak a different language? Yeah, you see, but Swahili, which I speak then, um, was known in many different East Africa. It's spoken in so many different countries. Okay. Yeah, so, but there, they spoke a Ugandan language in the city. It's the capital city. <laughs> okay. So few people knew Swahili or anything like that. And I'd learned some English in the refugee camp, mm -hmm. you know, so they taught us some English. So I had, I knew some broken English. Uh, and yes, but Uganda was also a British colony. So yeah, okay. some people spoke, spoke a English. little English. Yeah, so yeah, so... So I'm there, um, I went back to the streets, Joe, you know, s sleeping on the pavements like the other street kids, learned uh, pickpocketing. Learned the art of pickpocketing. Would you learn that from somebody else? The street, yeah. Yeah, just from some other... of the boys, yeah. Yeah. Did you have like a, like a group of friends or, or was everybody kind of keep to themselves or... Ah, uh, they they were together, but because of some language barrier, we could not connect much. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, yeah, but I would watch. I would watch some of the things they did, how they survived, and uh, try to do the same. Did you ever get caught? <laughs> no, I thank no. God. <laughs> <laughs> because some kids I've seen, they were beat real bad when they got caught. Mm. They were beat uh, terribly, you know. Yeah, so for me, I would have to wait if somebody's wearing like a heavy coat, mm. and uh, because in the in the <laughs> in that area, people would be w walking very close to each other. Yeah. So somebody touches you, you don't know. Mm -hmm. Or the big coat, you can just put the hand in there. Quick, yeah. Or the the wallet in the back, you can mm -hmm. find a way to pull it out quick and. It's brutal. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, life, life makes you do uh, crazy stuff. Uh, during breakfast, lunch, or dinner, there would be women cooking in the market. So I would wait uh, for leftovers where people eat and then throw it in the in the garbage can. So I would mm -hmm. pick up and I would eat that to survive. You know, you do. I had to do everything, you know, to survive. But I didn't know what I was even trying to survive for. And just one day at a time. One again. day at a time. Yeah. Back to one day at a time. Um, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. So one day I'm looking for food in this garbage can and this truck driver, you know, uh, stopped me and said, sit down, you know. He bought me a nice plate of food and he's like, why are you in the streets? You know, so I told him, you know, in my broken English and Swahili, uh, my journey, and um, he told me, you know, I'm going to Dar es Salaam, then to Zambia. I, I can help you. You know, it's one of those people that drove these semis from country to country, transporting goods. Okay. Yeah. Had so, he had he seen you before around or why? He what might have. Him, well, what, yeah, well, I was just wondering what made him ask you because you weren't the only like homeless boy around, right? Yeah, I wasn't so, the only homeless. Either 
It could be different theories. I never really asked. Yeah. It could be different theories. Maybe he has seen me around or he was feeling generous. Mm -hmm. Oh, he was feeling bored and needed to talk to some, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but he was a good Christian guy. So mm -hmm. I would like to think God connected us in that sense. Long journey. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at it here, man. Africa is a big country. <laughs> or a big continent, continent I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> country. <laughs> big continent, yeah. Yeah. What, um, what kind of, like, truck? Like, just like a... Like the semis. Okay, okay. Big, yeah. And so there's a there's like a highway system. Yeah, there's a highway. Away. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, the development is good. Nice mm -hmm. highway system. Mm -hmm. So every time, because I did not have any passport, no documentation, every time we arrived at a border, um, I would go behind there, hide with the goods <laughs> until we crossed over where safe yeah. get out and sit at the front with them. And we continue like that. Yeah. Yeah, you know tried to preach to me, you know, read the Bible and mm -hmm. yeah, you know, we had fun, you know, uh, <laughs> he was a nice character, you know, every town we stopped, it was fun. Yeah. So I enjoy that. As you're like going through these different countries and everything, you know, you said before that was like your first experience in a city and that wasn't even the biggest city, but was there any new experiences that you remember things that you had never even thought of before? Or like what? Any particular things in the journey that stood out to you? or uh, The first stop, I think we stopped around Bukoba in Tanzania mm -hmm. and spent the night there. He got some, uh, is, is it a motel, motel, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Uh, yeah, nice place there. Yeah, I'd never, I did not know, you know, the concept of a shower. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I ate this whole time. Never even had thought of that. <laughs> like, yeah. Because before you're just whatever nature has to offer, right? Yeah. And, Rain, but but river. also even yeah. when, yeah, we bathed, you yeah. know, you had a, a benson, you poured water and mm -hmm. then you washed yourself. But the concept of standing in a shower and opening yeah. hot or cold water, yeah. um, that was something I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now you go in a shower. <laughs> I almost burnt myself. That's <laughs> <It's> primitive. <laughs> Put a primitive man in this kind of technology, they'll kill themselves. <laughs> yeah. So, but every town, then Dar es Salaam, an amazing little city. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we enjoy the drive and meeting different people. He knew different people in every town. He was living his life, man. It was was that that was a route that he that he normally drove. Yeah. So he was able to really tell you, yeah, like this is where we are. I know these people. And yeah, yeah. He knew all the good stops. He knew all the good stops. He <laughs> knew all the people and all that good stuff. So to me. It's it's like you're in 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 a wonder, mm -hmm. you know. You're seeing stuff your mind uh, had never imagined. So it's like your Very mind expanding. is slowly expanding. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> through all these experiences, you know, it was fun. So that that had to help to get your mind kind of back it kept on my track. mind fresh yeah yeah because mm -hmm. scenery you know mm -hmm. seeing different places different landscapes different buildings the ocean and all that stuff yeah the nature of life 
So my mind was like a student, mm-hmm. you know, having you know a visual of a world I'd never seen mm-hmm. that existed beyond my little village and yeah. my little uh, my country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the trip that eventually and you ended up in Johannesburg, right? Yeah, eventually after a long, long time, we land in Johannesburg, South Africa. Weeks, months. You know, I lost uh, a concept of time. Really. Yeah, I lost a concept of the time, maybe um, because of the trauma, but also because of the wonderment. I mean, um, mm-hmm. every day is like a dream, you know, yeah. going through this. You don't know where you are. I didn't know. I didn't have a map. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know where you are in the you're world. just along for the ride. But yeah, you're just out for the ride. Yeah. <laughs> So, so many psychological issues. You don't have purpose. You don't have meaning. You lost the people that you love. So, yeah, you're going through so many different emotions every day. It was a roller coaster of emotions every day. But we make it to Joburg, uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. And that was the best of all the cities I'd seen, you know, yeah. from Dar es Salaam to Lusaka. Joburg was Way <laughs> amazing place, and they bought me some clothes and you know gave me some money, and and this is you know and sometimes I share this story just to to let people know that it doesn't take much uh, to change somebody's life. You know, one act of kindness um, can change somebody's course of life. That's why. Uh, we have to be kind to one another, you know. That's why we have to believe in the spirit of humanity. That one dollar that bought me a bus ticket to mm-hmm. Kampala, uh, the truck driver taking a random chance, yeah. you know, that chance you take on somebody. Uh, I don't know where they are now, but mm-hmm. I'm here. So any any act of kindness can really change somebody's course of life for the better. And that is why I encourage people uh, to, to, to respect the spirit of humanity, uh, to, to respect um, a sense of caring, a sense of mercy, a sense of compassion you know, for the other. A one dollar that may not mean much to you, it can change somebody's life. And mm-hmm. if you have a chance to be kind, just do it. So we arrive in, Kampa- uh, in, in Johannesburg, and he bought me some clothes and he said, you know, um, and he gave me some money, a South African runs, nice, nice money. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to be fine here. And I, I believed it because he's like somebody I've learned to trust. Mm-hmm. So he gave me his phone numbers and everything, his contact and all that stuff. So I'm off to my own dream now. Yeah. Job in Johannesburg. I'm looking for a motel. A few blocks in the city, two guys come with a gun and they take everything uh, Anton had, had given me, uh, my friend. And uh, I tried to locate where he was, you know, where I left him, but I could not because all the streets looked the same. And you see the <laughs> naivety. If I knew the street name, mm-hmm. Maybe somebody would have directed me there and maybe I would have found him. I didn't know that streets had names. <laughs> so yeah. this is like immediately after you parted 
ways with, yeah, with this guy. Yeah, after we parted ways, I'm walking. Within you know, minutes, hours? Maybe 30 minutes to an hour. Oh my God. I'm admiring this Within city. Within 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. You've got your leg up. You've got some money in your pocket, fresh clothes, yes. a bag. Man. <laughs> nice bag. Can't catch a break. <laughs> no. <laughs> Man, I believed, you know, for many years, I believed that maybe I was cursed. <laughs> what, what, do you, you know, know any idea why they targeted you? Did you just go down the wrong street? Did you have a look I about down, you? Just, just didn't know the rules, like stay away from, from these places or what to look out for? I didn't know anything. Yeah. But at around 2000, Johannesburg had a strong um, culture of crime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was a brutal time in Johannesburg. Crime was at a high, high rate. Mm -hmm. So these guys probably, they're, they're the street dwellers, they're street watchers. They could probably see they the see wonder in somebody's your eyes. They see somebody's green. Oh, we got like, him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they saw someone who's totally green. Yeah. The way you walk, yeah. <laughs> they say, oh, it's not for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, well, so when you see even like the way you walk, you know, when we... Uh, uh, my wife and I, we went to Thailand, Japan and everything. And I guess when I get to Japan, it's pretty obvious I'm a foreigner. I'm 6'4", I'm tall, you know, I don't <laughs> look anything like a Japanese person. But there is like a flow when you're in these cities that just have people on top of people on top of people, you know, there's a certain etiquette to the way that you walk and the way you move through the crowds and everything. And yeah, it's just, I, I, so many times I felt out of place because I'm you know, bumping into people or, you know, I'm stopping at the wrong time, you know, and, and yeah, so I guess now, now yeah. that I'm thinking, well, I can see how, yeah, they, yeah, they so can, they see how, isn't it? But it's just that it happens so fast. <laughs> it happens so fast, brother. It happens so fast. And um, you adjust when things, when tragedy happens. Um, I think uh, our bodies and our minds are more equipped than sometimes we think. So when things happen so quick, you know, I learn to adjust quick mm -hmm. to my new normal. So it's like I told, like I said, I believe then that I'm cursed. <laughs> I can't catch a break. <laughs> you know, in Africa, we, are, we believe in all this mystic you know, maybe there's a big curse on my life. I cannot <laughs> catch a break. I can't do anything. But street life in Kampala had already prepared me for street life in Johannesburg, South Africa. See, so every experience that happens to us is not by accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so <laughs> every experience that happens, take it in good stride, learn from it. So I learned enough about survival in the streets of Kampala and I used the same skills in Johannesburg, going to the taxi rank where those ladies are cooking, mm -hmm. waiting for leftovers. So I went back to the streets, you know, Johannesburg had so many abandoned buildings where the street kids slept. The difference, like um, South Africa had a winter, so it was a little cooler. Mm -hmm. uh, during, it was much colder uh, then. It was tough. Um, but we learned ways to survive in the streets. And that's the thing. What people don't understand is when you're homeless and when you're in the streets, um, your sense of worth, your sense of humanity is almost in question because there's a sense of feeling that you're, you, you're in a world you don't belong. Mm -hmm. 
you're in a world, uh, no one talks to you, no one trusts you. Mm. Uh, you go, you just stand somewhere in front of a shop, they kick you out, mm. get out of here. Uh, you're in a world you don't belong. You're a stranger in a world of the people who are able and successful. Um, so your sense of worth is totally worthless. Uh, your sense of humanity, you don't feel human. Um, it's tough. And that's why uh, I, I'm a big advocate for mercy and compassion because not everyone in the streets really wants to be there. Right. Yeah, there's some that, you know, you know, <laughs> are comfortable, you know, being in the streets. Some have mental issues. Some are actually just trying to survive, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that's why it's important. Here in America, it's really easy to be homeless. Many people, a few paychecks away to be homeless mm-hmm. and stranded. And Especially right now, man, it's like people are out of work and yeah. some people just don't have a savings account. You know, they're living yeah. paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, I know some, some friends that are struggling, you know, coworkers and everything like that, where it's, we just passed the, the beginning of the month, rent is due, you know, and like some of them are trying to, it sounds like some landlords are understanding, some landlords are not compassionate, know. you know, yeah. they're just like, oh, too bad. Yeah. So, but when we live in a culture that is always judgmental, mm-hmm. you know, people who are other, people who are different, people who are a little lower class, we, we, we like to categorize people and we become judgmental. There are lots of smart people who will be homeless. They don't want to be there. Yeah. They, and so many hard workers. They don't want handouts. They mm-hmm. want a job so they can work. Yeah. So we have to always be in touch with our humanity. Uh, and, and that's the issue. I see people, you know, once they get better, they make some money. All of a sudden, they're way high. They don't want to talk to anyone below. Mm-hmm. And if you live like that, uh, you have to reevaluate yourself because uh, we are better. Uh, in Africa, we have this concept, I am because we are, uh, the sense of community that our, life, our lives are interwoven mm-hmm. together. And I have to value your humanity as much as I value my humanity because we are interconnected. Through your well-being, I have my well-being. Just practical, even here, you started this studio <laughs> for you. Yeah. you then I yeah. find, you know, so we are extremely interconnected than we can imagine. And if we continually live with that humanity, that embracing of our humanity and our connection with other human beings, we can do more. We can help and inspire one another. So life in the streets was tough, um, brutal you know, feeling less than human. And so, yeah, I was many times still, you know, trying to commit suicide. And um, and my mother, you know, would hear the voice still, God will make a way for you. And then one day (laughs) I'm walking and these two guys are coming along and they're speaking and I'm thinking, is the normal... The normal routine, you know, when they approached me, they would switch over to the other side of the road. But these guys didn't care. They kept coming and they're having conversation. And then I hear them speak a language from northern Uganda where I was in a refugee camp. And I'm mm-hmm. like, hey, 
brothers, can you help me? <laughs> yeah. Yes, and so they were shocked that a straight kid in Johannesburg understood their language and they mm. said, you know, we cannot help you, but there's a pastor. Uh, his name is John Dongo. He's a Kenyan pastor. Uh, he will help you. So they graciously showed me the pastor's office and he was pastoring Johannesburg Bethany Baptist Church. And they took me to his office and I told him, Pastor, I need a place to stay. He had a loaf of bread, I think, in his office. I remember eating almost all of it. <laughs> I was that hungry, yeah. man. And <laughs> so he took me to the church property and there were about 15 other boys, other refugees from different countries there, Zimbabwe, Kenya, Uganda, uh, living in the church building. And that's where I was living. <laughs> uh, yeah, curious, can you find it on the internet? The church closed, but the building oh, really? is still there. Um, the building is still there. Let me remember the street. Either 15 Johnston Street. I remember seeing the uh, the building once on Google. Um, Google, is it Street View or Image? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I saw it. That's the street, okay. Johnson Street. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's behind that big apartment building. Okay. Yeah, next to it. Oh, here. You see where that red shirt is? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah so the church is there. That's the gate to the church. <laughs> that's cool. You can still go back and look. <laughs> yeah, wow. Now that's even more clear. So there's a church, a car parked by the church. Yeah. So across here is a park. You see, Berea Park. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> wow, these technologies are awesome, <laughs> man. I can actually go back. Wow. So one day, um, I'm, I'm inside this, you know, at the church, I'm like, let me go to the park, mm -hmm. you know, and just get some fresh air. Uh, during that time, uh, the South African police uh, had already begun uh, to profile for immigrants. You know, they were, the government was mad that there were so many illegal immigrants in South Africa and it was affecting their economy, whatever. Mm. And so they decided to arrest illegal immigrants and deport them back to wherever they're coming from. So I get out of the, you found it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I get out of the church uh, to take a walk and I go across to Berea Park. Mm -hmm. As I'm walking across to the park, the police car stops. And that was about a week or two of living in the church. All that soon? <laughs> yeah, that's soon. Again, that's man, was, yeah. you can't catch a break. <laughs> I, I <couldn't. laughs> about a week or two living in the church, um, I get arrested, you know, the police stop. Where's your visa? You don't look like a South African. I don't have a visa. I don't have a passport. Then yeah. I'm arrested. What does a South African look like? Uh, <laughs> totally different. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So. They know <laughs> and I think every ethnicity has different features. Yeah. 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 So were they, they do you, were they around there just because they knew there were like people living at the church or just totally probably random happened to be in the area. Because the area that I, I was at had lots of immigrants. Mm -hmm. So Berea, Yorville. So they were, they were targeting Hillbrook. your area in general. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they were targeting the area in general. 
and then they stop and I'm arrested and I'm taken to Lindela. It's a huge uh, deportation camp. Um, that's where I was, that's where we were put um, to be deported back um, to, to South Sudan. And um, it was tough, man. Um, I remember the pastor coming and saying, you know, don't worry, we'll get you out. Within two weeks, we'll get you out and it didn't happen. I figured this is it for me, man. I'm, I'm gone. Um, because, because I was forced to fight against the government. Uh, upon arrival in Khartoum, I was going to be killed. So what's it called, Khartoum? Khartoum was the capital city of Sudan. Okay, okay. Yeah, and, and, and that's the one that's under like the... The Sudanese, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So... Um, why? Why? Because they, oh, it's the capital, that's why they they want to deport you there specifically. That's in, in most African cities... The capital cities, that's where the airport is. Mm, yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, the airport yeah. is always closer to the biggest city yeah. in the country. Yes, yeah, so to Khartoum, and that's where the government offices are and all that. So I knew, I knew that if I was deported, I was gone, you know. And um, so uh, by way of miracle, I don't know whether it's from the church a miracle happened that the lawyers for human rights heard about my story. I suspect whether it was the director of the deportation camp because I'd spoken to him. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, he, he was always involved in talking to the people who were arrested. Yeah. So whether it was him who called the lawyers for human rights, but a miracle happened. Now, now then I could recognize a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> So the lawyers for human rights came and some journalists came and they interviewed me and they published and advocated, is it fair to deport this young man back uh, to Sudan knowing that upon arrival he's going to be killed? And, you know, it caught the attention of the public and people said no. So I was released and I went back to Bethany Baptist Church and uh, I was given uh, uh, refugee paperwork. Okay. Yeah, so I went back to Bethany. So you had something to show if you got stopped again. Yes, yeah, I'm legal. Gotcha. <laughs> Did that happen for other people at that camp with you around that time, or was it just, were you just At that fortunate? time, was my view you? was just me. Just you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's why I felt like now God had given me, out of all the many chances to live, this was a chance to live. And... Um, I got out of the camp, I went back to the church and uh, I became very active in the church. Like I said, I sang in the choir, I, I became the youth leader. Everything they needed, I did it. I yeah. felt like now perhaps I have a purpose or perhaps these miracles are no longer coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> was, it, was it really like, was it that one event where now you had the switch or had you been kind of, were you on your way to to believing, you know, or at least not hating God? <laughs> Were you on your way there already or was it just kind of like... So for the two weeks I was at the church, I'd ask, you know, um, I was, you know, embracing the compassion of God's people. So that really softened my heart to see the compassion of God's people, to meet the pastor and his congregation and how kind they were to mm-hmm. us. They did not treat us any differently. So that softened me a little bit. But then I get arrested. Yeah. 
Then I'm taken to deep. I'm like, that's it. I give up. I give up. So I gave up, you know, in the in our dormitory in <laughs> cell, there were Nigerian Christians there. They would wake up at five, six in the morning and they're singing and they're worshiping God. Yeah. I would just close my ears. I didn't want to hear anything. I didn't, I didn't want to pray. I couldn't even pray for myself. Yeah. How long were you there at the, the deportation camp? About 40 days. 40 days. We had one meal a day at 3 p.m., you know, from 3 p.m. until next day at 3 p.m., one yeah. meal a day. I'd given up on life. Was that even enough food for... No. 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 If you Google it now, Lindela, mm -hmm. you'll see thousands of pictures of thousands of people there. That's how it was, man. Lindela, L I N. D-E-L-A, Deportation Camp, South Africa. Oh, I think, is this is, is this an aerial view? I know it's not the Google images, but is yeah. that's it? Yeah, Lindela Deportation Camp. That's where I was, man, for 40 days. Um, I believe that's it. That is when I believed that if I got out, maybe God has his eye on me. <laughs> that was the deal breaker. Yeah. My life, my faith, and I tell people this, my faith in God needed that miracle. So, and, and at that point, you were, you had like at least some will to live, like you had a reason to live. Because before, you know, you didn't care one way or the other, it seemed like, you know. Yeah, I didn't care. But at this point, when you're at this camp, you had started to kind of get that back. Yes. Right. I was starting to get that back and to have the, especially the love of a church community. Mm -hmm. So I figured, you know, I'm 21. South Africa was beautiful, beautiful women, you know. <laughs> you're beginning to, to imagine things, oh, you know. Okay. <laughs> All of a that sudden, more the will comes back. <laughs> <laughs> but then I get arrested and all that, is, that comes crashing down. And But when I was released, and I believe this is serious now, these, are, these survival stories are more than coincidences. Mm -hmm. These survival stories is Perhaps God, um, you know, is saving me for something, you know. So um, I get released from Lindell. I went back to church. I recommitted my life to God and began to work, you know, began to do Bible studies for the youth, mm -hmm. sing in the choir, do the ushering thing and yeah. everything, everything the church needed. I was, I was ready to do it. And then... Um, yeah, so I began to grow in my faith and be active in my faith community. And uh, around December, I began to have a series of dreams where I was preaching, you know. But the strangest thing is I was never preaching at the pulpit, at the church. Mm -hmm. I was always preaching outside, you know. There would be like a pulpit and a big crowd of people outside <laughs> and I'm speaking. <laughs> so it happened a number of times and I told my pastor, you know, pastor, I've been having this kind of dreams. He said, you know what? I had the same dream. So maybe God is calling you to serve him. Then I said, okay, what's the next step? Mm. And he said, you know, we are Baptists. We believe in education. We believe that any preacher has to go to school. 
So I'm like, I'm now 21, never been through any yeah. school system. I was actually, yeah, my, my question when you said you were you were like teaching and everything, leading Bible study and everything, could you read at that point? What did you, what was your education? No, um, just the foundational education in the refugee camp. And the okay, English, okay, there was, yeah, okay, okay. So, yeah, so you had a, yeah. I had a good foundation in that. So okay. my English though broken, I could read, I could, okay. yeah. So that's the, I think, uh, I was gifted with language. As a kid, I could speak like 17 to 21 local African uh, Sudanese language. We had 140 wow. languages. Wow. Yeah, so life there is so weird that if like people in Juliet would have their own language, mm -hmm. people in Aurora would have their own language, mm -hmm. Bolingbrook, like that. Were they but small similar, variations. like different, yeah, slightly different dialects? Or, yeah, small yeah. variations mm -hmm. here and there. Some words that it's just like yeah. that. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it was... And I was interested in picking up language. So in the refugee camp, they were teaching us French and English. Okay. I'd actually picked a lot of French, but I lost it. I couldn't <laughs> speak it. And yeah. 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 So, so yeah. So, yeah. So began to teach the youth. And then uh, and the pastor said, you know, uh, God is calling you to ministry. So 2001, January, let's go to the Baptist College in Soweto. I'm like, pastor, it doesn't make sense. I don't have any my education. He so said, let's just go and see. So we went to the Baptist college and they had my story and they said, you know, it looks like your um, life experience is worth a high school degree. Just come in, you're, you're 21, you can go back to high school. We'll try our best to mentor you. Mm -hmm. uh, it looks like, you know, you, you speak smart. It looks like you can grasp uh, some of these concepts quicker. And, um, will help you, you know, so I went and, uh, yeah, I felt like for the first time in my life, there's a purpose now. My life actually has a meaning now. Yeah. So I went and I was in the library studying hard, learning, you know, getting the mentorship of the professors mm -hmm. from January to March. Yeah. What did you, what did you study? Was there, were you like free? Did they give you certain things that you had to learn? Yeah, we and, had classes. Yeah. We studied the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament, mm. theology, Greek and all that. Yeah. yeah all was there anything in particular that you liked? Like if you had a little extra time to do, study what you wanted, was there something that you gravitated towards or? Uh, yeah, politics. Really? Yeah. So what about politics? Why politics? I wanted, even if I was in seminary for some reason, I admired uh, the life of Mahatma Gandhi and Martin okay. Luther King. Yeah. So I figured I would go back to South Sudan yeah. and be a liberation theologian. Okay. And, and liberate, fight for the liberation of my people. Where did you, <laughs> where did you learn about like Martin Luther King and, and the library. Gandhi and everything? Oh, so. So there were books. Yeah. Yeah. yeah all the tabs, video tabs and all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the seminary had amazing resources. Okay. Yeah, so I was consuming, watching documentaries and all these uh, people who were engaged in their civil society. Mm -hmm. and because in my dream, I was preaching, but not inside the church. So I interpreted maybe it's political. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe it's, okay. uh, yeah, it's a social... So you're kind of looking for examples, like in what situation would somebody be in front of outside? Yeah, yeah at the, social yeah. justice, uh -huh. my life story, my life experiences. And yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to be a liberal, so I'm, I'm going to be a liberation theologian or fight for social justice mm -hmm. in South Sudan. So I already decided this is it for me. <laughs> the preaching classes... 
I dodged. <laughs> I didn't really? care. Yeah. I, did. <laughs> I didn't care for preaching. But three months in, former, I'm enjoying. But the bills are coming. Mm. The bills are coming to the church. The pastor doesn't have money. I don't have money. So I'm like, you know, the pastor took me out of the kindness of his heart. He doesn't have money. Maybe this is not the right time. So I quit. Mm. I quit the college. I quit the church. I moved to a different town. Why did you decide to quit the church too? Like, was I felt disappointed. Yeah. I felt, um, I mean, if you're going to take somebody to school and you promise to take care of it and you're not. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting all these bills. Yeah. I don't have the money. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have the money. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, maybe, you know, uh, this is all a big dream. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes sense. I was enjoying it. Mm-hmm. But let me go make money. Let me make my own money. Okay. And then I'll pay these people what I owe them mm-hmm. and continue with so my So you wanted studies. to go out and... You wanted to try to not rely on them. Yes. But go out and, yeah. Okay. Make my own money and rely on myself yeah. to, to to pay for my tuition. So I quit the college. I quit the church. I quit Johannesburg. And I went to a small township in Pretoria called Shoshangove. Mm-hmm. So there, me and my friends, uh, we put money together, you know, uh, and we decided to buy secondhand clothes from Bangladesh, those clothes that come and then to mm. sell them to the public. Okay. Yeah, two dollars, what three dollars in the marketplace <laughs> screaming, come, yeah. come here. Yeah. One dollar, uh-huh. two dollars. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. To, to become a tradesman. Yeah. So we were doing that in Pretoria, making some money, surviving. We're able to buy more stock. Mm-hmm. sell, mm-hmm. and life is going fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no religion, no stop going to church, just trying to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, my theology was messed up. I believe yeah. that God only helps those who help themselves. Okay. <laughs> you know, that is not scripture, but for some reason I believed it was in the Bible. God somewhere, helps those who help themselves. It makes sense. It's probably in there somewhere. It's a big yeah. book. It's a big book. It's in there. It's in there, you know. <laughs> so let me help myself. <laughs> well, looking back, it's quite something. So I leave, I left the seminary in about April, May I was out, June I was out. Around July, I get a phone call from one of my friends. He says, so uh, the seminary is looking for you. I'm like, I know I owe them money (laughs) right now. I cannot call them because I don't have enough savings to pay them. I know they want their money. I don't have money. So he says, so this is bigger. You know, it, it didn't look like when they when they called me looking for you, it didn't look like they were looking for you to pay, but it looks like they had some good news for you. They didn't mm-hmm. tell me. Just call them. Please call them. So, uh, okay, I waited, you know. Yeah, how long did it take you to build up the nerve to actually call them? Uh, <laughs> maybe about a day. Yeah. Yeah, then I, I called my buddies. I'm like, I need some moral support here. Let me call <laughs> these people. I owe them money. <laughs> so I call 
the office of the seminar and okay, the secretary says, okay, wait, I'll, I'll put, uh, connect you to the president. And then the president said, yes, oh, we are looking for you. You have a scholarship from uh, America for, the, for the, all your three years you're here. Don't worry about tuition. Don't worry about uh, accommodation. Don't worry about books. Just mm. show up. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is paid. I couldn't believe it, man. It was another miracle. Yeah. So I went back to the seminary and uh, got down to study. Yeah. Yeah. So after three years, I was top of my class. And that's how hard I, I put in the effort. Yeah. Man, because I'm like, this is it. Yeah. This is it. This will save my life from all the hustling in the streets. Um, this is it. So I gave it a hundred percent. So after three years and then, um, uh, one American pastor had come to preach at Bethany Baptist church mm -hmm. and they had my story. Uh, Dr. Roy Nevers, he says, when I go back to the United States, he was from Milwaukee. Okay. When I go back to the United States, I would talk to my former seminary, Northern, to see if you can come there and do your master's. And yeah, Northern Seminary gave me a presidential scholarship to just show up. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So I came and um, that's where I got my master's and my doctorate. Uh, yeah, that's the journey. How long uh, did it take for like your, your master's doctorate? Uh, for my master's, it was three years. For my doctorate, about five years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> on top of how many years did you spend in uh just the... let's say i started from 2001 to 2015 wow <laughs> <laughs> non-stop but after i got my master's i got a job in a church and um in glen allen and i did not fail it you know um because what were you what were you doing first of all the context uh, I'd always seen myself as someone who is preaching to the poor, to the homeless, mm -hmm. you know. But uh, God has a sense of humor. And now I'm in a church in Glen, very affluent community yeah. in Glen Ellen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have any of those people around that you were looking for. <laughs> so... Um, and also in America, I found uh, different from Africa or ministering to the poor, uh, the sense of openness is not that people are very guarded, people are very protective. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was missing that human connection until I began to volunteer. Uh, at the final year of my uh, master's program, I did an internship at a hospice in Addison mm -hmm. and I loved it. So I decided, okay, I quit the church and then I did um, a clinical pastoral education to trying to be a chaplain. Then I had a residence at Elmhurst Hospital for one year. Then I got a job at Advocate Hospice to work as a chaplain. And that is when I felt this is it for me mm -hmm. because I like uh, being in pain. I like ministering to people who are in pain. So I'm attracted, okay. yeah to people who are going through pain. And that allows me to use my pain to provide healing. Hospice, I'm working with people who are dying, you know, who are experiencing death, grief. Those are experiences I've gone through. 
I know what it means to lose a loved one. I know what it means, you know, to go through the pain of grief and depression and all those things that comes with death and dying. Mm -hmm. Life prepared me for that. And that is an area I became very confident in, to come into somebody's chaos and offer calm and peace and comfort and encouragement and counseling through the process. Yeah. And that is in that context, that is when I feel I'm whole doing that, yeah. walking alongside people, going through pain and suffering. That's why like last I could be walking up at one in the morning and I'll go. You said you were there till 6 a.m. this morning. Yes. So I go and offer comfort for the family yeah. and guide them through this difficult journey. So in the process, you know, I use my wounds, I use my pain and my experiences to offer healing, to offer hope for someone else. I love that. Um, so that is why I'm doing what I'm doing. The opportunity to be a companion mm-hmm. in somebody's final stages of life and grief um, is a great opportunity. It's a sacred, uh, deeply spiritual opportunity. You know that. I, yeah. Yes, I love to do. What was um, when you were you were interning at the the hospice place? Was mm-hmm. there? Um, how did, how did that work? Did you follow like another chaplain around or was it, like, when did you become aware of the actual process of what the chaplain does? So um, I was given, uh, first of all, a training, uh, hospice training in the, in, a, in a boardroom like this. Mm-hmm. And then after that, for about a week, I followed the chaplain, the senior chaplain. And, mm-hmm. and he was an amazing guy. He was called Jeffrey Pierce. I followed him around and he showed me the robes and yeah. it was beautiful. Then I began to make those individual visits and seeing the impact mm-hmm. that I was making in people's lives. Um, yeah. Do you remember your, your first solo visit, the first one you yes, did on your own? Yes, and, and it was really deep because this lady, um, uh, she was dying, but she wanted to reconcile with her son. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, some things happened many years back and her son had not forgiven her. Now she's dying and she wanted to make peace and there was no way, there was no way that we could um, get a hold of the son. All contacts were lost. Mm-hmm. And um, so I remember sitting there and we were talking and she's crying and uh, it was difficult. Then all of a sudden... You know, through discernment or something, I sat and I said, um, what if I was your son sitting right here in front of you? What do you want to say to me? So <laughs> that's a therapy technique I didn't even know about, you mm-hmm. know. But I'm here now. I have a mask of your son. Talk. And she spoke, man. She spoke, she was crying. And I said, you know, if I was your son, I'd forgive you. You're forgiven. And she um, just needed to to say it out loud? Yes. To somebody? Yes. Because she probably hadn't... She had lost contact with her yeah. son. But she needed somebody to be that mask mm-hmm. for her son so she can let go of her pain and everything. 
that was the moment I realized this is it. This yeah. is what I was born to do. Yeah. Yes. And three days later, she died peacefully, having, in her way, reconciled, said whatever she wanted to say. She let it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we prayed together. And then another incident where uh, same reconciliation, uh, but this time we found a daughter. For 50 years, they had not connected. The daughter left when she was about 16. Oh, she wow. was abused by her mom's husband. So mm-hmm. she left because her mom couldn't believe her. So through technology, we found the daughter. Then she was able to reconcile with her mother. And to see that, to be there to facilitate that yeah. uh, moment of reconciliation and healing, um, all those things have found my calling to hospice chaplaincy. Uh, to provide healing in that sense. Yes, they will never, in most cases, they will not be cured of their disease and they're dying. But at least they find emotional and spiritual healing Mm -hmm. to face that final moment with peace. So experiences like that that I could not get at the church made me realize um, this is where I was meant to be. Do you still have any desire to be on the podium in front of... Masses of people is that? It's natural. It's natural. I mean, I mean, I go around. I sometimes I do motivational speaking. I okay. love to preach. I yeah. prepare great sermons. Yeah. So once in a while. Yeah. But but it's not what, what I do behind yeah. the scenes, like one-on-one visits. Mm-hmm. That's where actually I find more meaning, more fulfillment than in front of the public. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> Yeah, man, I stopped traveling around to share my story because there were so many invitations, big conferences and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I do it, but where I find more, I'm at peace, is in that one-on-one. There are no eyes of the public just offering therapy Mm -hmm. to someone who is dying. Yeah. Yeah, or someone who is dealing with grief and pain. I love that. You know, like yesterday, last night, this woman has lost her husband. In, in a few months, it will be 62 years of marriage. Mm. This is her best friend. This is yeah. her entire life. But when I get in and she's weeping and I ask, tell me, how did you meet? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> yeah. then all of a sudden she lit up yeah. and she's laughing and mm-hmm. sharing the story of how they met. It's like she's saying hello yeah. again before mm-hmm. she can fully say goodbye. And by the time around six in the morning, by the time the funeral home came to pick his body up, she was able now to say goodbye mm-hmm. after remembering how they met yeah. 62 years ago and the experiences they went through and all that. That is what I live for. That is why I love a hospice chaplaincy. That's why I became a hospice chaplain. Man, you've had quite the journey (laughs) and you know like I said I've been sitting here for a couple months now listening to you like tell these stories but you're telling mostly you know what your job has been you know since then what chaplaincy is like and I've heard little bits and pieces of you know where you came from 
but I purposely, I know you told me that there had been like documentaries on you before, but I didn't watch any of them because <laughs> I didn't want to lose like the curiosity, you know, yeah. like the questions and be like, oh, I already know, you know, so I wanted to to just sit down, you know, and, and talk to you. And um, I really, you know, I'm glad you're uh, awake. <laughs> <laughs> for people uh, yeah. that are for people that are listening, we started this interview at 10 a.m. and Saul <laughs> said that he just got done with his last call at 6 a.m. So, did you even get a nap in? Or yeah, from <laughs> I arrived home around seven, so I slept from seven. To, I woke up at eight. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right. Well, um, I'll let you go. Go home. Get some rest. You need it. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Thank you, brother. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> All right, bye. Thank you very much for joining us and for listening to this episode. This show is recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studios, and our engineer is Brian McKinder. Thank you for listening.